everybody, and welcome to another episode of Macintosh and Mod Haven't Seen What. I'm Diana. And I'm David. And this week, we start our holiday films. Yeah, it's holiday time, so happy holidays, everybody. So we're starting with a classic that David has never seen, Miracle on 34th Street, the 1947 version. When a nice old man who claims to be Santa Claus is institutionalized as insane, a young lawyer decides to defend him by arguing in court that he is the real thing. How, how have you not seen this? I don't have a good explanation. I think this is the first time I've actually like purposely sat down and watched it. But this was always playing on television. You know, by the time I would have recognized it, the new version had already mm-hmm. come out. Yep. And I think this fell out of rotation. I think It's a Wonderful Life became the go-to old school Christmas movie that always got played. That's the one I always remember. It is. I never remember Miracle on 34th Street being anywhere other than like movie channels and being talked about. It was definitely on, for me, it would have been channel like 21 and 33 on Saturdays and Sunday afternoons. And see, that wasn't... Because they're they're family friendly. They fill up two hours of television time easily with commercials and there's nothing you have to cut from the actual movie. The other problem was we were a Christmas story family. Oh. That movie's horrible. It's fun. Mm-hmm. But we were we were into the sarcasm and the ridiculous jokes and yes. how do the little piggies eat and all of that stuff. Yes, I've had them quoted at me ad nauseum. So I, th- I think it's a timing issue mm-hmm. that about the time I would have been engaged in stuff, this fell off the rotation. And also, right there in the early to mid 90s, there were a ton of new Christmas movies that came True. out. True. I mean, we, and then, you know, Home Alone came out in 90. And so. Then the Santa Claus comes out around 94. Santa so Claus is amazing. You know, all yeah. these new Christmas movies had already come out. And the remake was in 94. I saw, I remember seeing the remake in the theaters. I, and I never saw that, but there were already so many other Christmas movies that this one was just never. In the rotation in our family. It was never in our rotation, but because, you know, we didn't have cable, so it just kind of stuck turning on that background TV. All right, this is what's on. Okay, this is what we're watching. So, what'd you think? How'd you feel? Well, it's a great movie. This movie's precious. There's a reason it's a classic. It is so... There's a reason why they redid it, which our writer and director, George Seaton, actually helped with that adaptation along with Mr. John Hughes. Ah. To update it, so... Okay, so this film had a budget of $2.6 million, and I don't have an exact gross, but IMDb and Wikipedia and all that say that it grossed four times its budget. So it made about $10 million, which in 1947 is a lot of money. Yeah, so I mean, it certainly, it, it did all right. It made all its money back. And why wouldn't it? It's a perfect family movie that could run for ages and ages and ages. Funny enough, it was originally called Christmas Miracle on 34th Street, but they released this in May. I remember hearing about this. The studio head at the time, Daryl F. Zanuck, insisted that it be released in May because he argued that more people went to the movies during the summer. So the studio renamed it and they had to scramble to promote this film by keeping the fact that it was about Christmas a secret. (laughs) How? And well, they remove Christmas from it, and if you just the you know little girl shopping and parade, you know, and keep it kind of quiet. They don't talk about Santa Claus in the advertising. Well, advertising was a little different in 1947. <laughs> so I'm just trying to they figure didn't have out the internet to look up this shit. It was just word of mouth at that no, point. It would just be interesting that could you promote 
Santa Claus without it being Christmas. Mm-hmm. And you could, theoretically. Yeah. Well, Zanuck also was very much against this film because he thought it was too corny to be successful. He finally agreed on a medium-sized budget. So $2.6 million was a medium budget with George Seaton, you know, writer-director. Provided writer-director George Seaton accepted his next three assignments unconditionally. This is back in the studio days where you just worked. Contracts were much... Much different at the time. Yeah, very much more abusive. Seton was desperate to get this made, so he said, okay, fine. I'm just going to say, with the exception of a couple people, like most of our cast, all their credits, I don't know anything about. So of course. So I kept it very pared down, and I'm only doing the big people for this film. Because it's just, there's so much. We do not have a lot of information, personally, about this era of film. We are looking towards fixing some of that, but... This is where we're at today. I think this is actually the oldest film we've covered for this podcast. All right. So writing. Writer's George Seaton. Uh, before this, he was a contributing writer to A Night at the Opera, Wizard of Oz, which is my favorite all-time movie. This thing called Love and Junior Miss. After this, of course, he did you know those three movies he had to, for heaven's sake, and he worked on the adaptation in 94 with John Hughes. So clearly this is the primo credit to his name for all eternity yeah this is the best biggest thing he's ever done damn the idea came from valentine davies they got the idea for the script while struggling through the christmas shopping crowds trying to find a present for his wife and the commercialism that he saw made him wonder what a real santa would make of all this so he came up with the story and george seaton wrote the screenplay this can never happen today organically it could. It totally could. It just... It, shit like this happens all the time. Dark Gritty Reboot. Yeah, Dark Gritty Reboot. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, that's where that lies, because that'll come back later when we get to awards. What do we think of the writing? It's a taut script. It's a perfectly balanced story. It hits every point it needs to. I dock it a few hokey points, mm-hmm. because even for a 1940s movie and a Christmas movie... The lawyer stuff is where you kind of go, really... There's a few moments in there. There's some of it where it's really good. Mm -hmm. What I was really like angling for was the legal argument of how am I going to prove with whatever facts I have. We love a weird legal reading. We love that stuff. Of course. It's then subpoenaing a kid to testify and certain other things to that effect that it was like, I wish y'all had just leaned into the realism a tiny bit more there. Yeah, but you wouldn't get the emotional payoff as well. I think they played it for levity, which is fine, but it would really be interesting to then suddenly raise the drama mm-hmm. and be like, we could send, A, this old man who's just really nice, mm-hmm. who has no real problems, yeah. into a mental institution, or if he is Santa Claus, holy fucking shit. Yeah. I would have personally liked to instead raise the stakes at that moment and really make it dead serious yeah. instead of always leaning into the lighthearted part of mm-hmm. that, which is what they did. That's the only thing, though, that I really have a gripe with. Yeah, that was that meandered a little bit to me. I liked that it came down to, okay, we can't prove there's not a Santa Claus. That's number one. So, okay, that's settled. We believe there could be a Santa Claus. A state of New York. We believe that. Okay. Now it comes down to, is this man Santa Claus or not? And I love that they use the post office. Under- It's against the law to illegally illegally deliver mail. Yep. 
and you have to in good fit in good faith you have to in good faith deliver mail properly there's no legal argument to say he's not santa claus this there's a storyline on grace and frankie where she keeps forgetting losing her key to her p.o box Uh so she just tells him she's dead (laughs) which the post office then reports to social security so she's legally dead in the eyes of the state Uh uh-huh and she's trying to fix it like how do you prove you're not dead and her ex-husband lawyer is like okay so i figured it out we got to get you arrested (laughs) because they cannot process you if you're dead. Yeah? No? That's and I true. And I was just like, this is ridiculous. And I love it. I love how backwards things can be, but they also make complete sense. Yeah. No, no I it, love it. I love the I love that it's the male. The male is what gets this guy. Free. And the fact that the male is really just a we could get rid of these letters. Oh, there's gotta be wait a minute. Yeah. Yeah. Like the post post office is using this to get rid of a bunch of mail, and then the lawyer's using this to be like, "Well, you've decided that this guy is the guy, so that means he's Santa." What is super refreshing about this movie is they don't lean into anything supernatural for it. Yes, every character is totally believable mm-hmm. in what they're doing. Again, the courtroom antics got crazy yeah but everybody in there had a rational motivation yes the judge has to seek re-election so he's caught between a rock and a hard place Mm -hmm. he fudges the process but only in so much as he can make it look fair without having to call this guy out yes he doesn't want to tell the world there is no santa claus He, he knows he can't afford that no But he finds a way to rationally understand that. And then in the process, he starts figuring out, what do I believe? No, which is great. And one of the things in the last couple of years with with Christmas Santa movies is the explanation of the mechanics of how Santa works, which is fun. And it's always nice to see a new person's interpretation for how does Santa do all this? Right. Like, I thought the Santa Claus was brilliant and so uh, tongue-in-cheek hilarious. I loved that whole series. I still do. But what I love about this is they don't even talk about it. It's never mentioned. And I know that's of the time. Uh, it's just, it's, you're just taking on faith. This is just what happens. And I, I love how how simple that is. Like, you're just supposed to believe. That's that's refreshing for yeah. 2018. It's It's super refreshing. And it's refreshing because there's no need to try to prove that he's Santa Claus. Mm-hmm. You just have to decide... Am I going to believe this guy for his word as to yeah. who he is? He's given me no indication otherwise. Okay. A plus on the story and A plus on the writing. Uh, a. Uh, a. A on the writing. Like 95. Okay. That's still an A. We have some issues. So our writer is also our director, George Seaton. Basically, all of his writing credits where he wrote the screenplay, he directed them. He also directed the 28th Oscars in 56. And his last film was in 73. It was called Showdown. So he worked for a very, very long time. I think this is very well directed. Even though there was nothing distracting. I think he got a lovely performance out of the children. He did. And I was super happy to watch this one in HD. Mm-hmm. You know, we always make we always have to make that choice. Are we just going to go for standard def or are we yeah. just going to spring for it and do high def? This is one of those movies I'm very glad we did. And we watched the black and white version. There is a colorized version that you can rent or purchase on Amazon. We did the black and white. 
it was so refreshing to get the crisp detail in the picture for it because the style and the way they film it is very open and airy, Mm -hmm. but without like the smearing Vaseline on the lens. It's Mm -hmm. very clear. There's nothing intentionally diffused in focus. Some of the most annoying moments of like, it's a wonderful life or when they've just really shined everything around and it's all pretty and Mm -hmm. bleh. And this movie isn't that. It's very concrete. It's very right in the middle of it. Mm -hmm. And it never feels like they're trying to sentimentalize. It's the acting and the performances that bring your emotions out. The actors and the script are so good that they evoke that emotion out of you. Mm -hmm. So you don't need any of the tricks of the camera to do that. No. But it's just, it's a very light touch. And it's a very smart choice to play it that way. Mm -hmm. Because that is that does have to be a choice by the director to mm-hmm. do that. Oh, absolutely. So let's start. Let's go with our cast. Uh, we start with Maureen O'Hara as Doris Walker, the classic Maureen O'Hara. Before this, Hunchback in Notre Dame, How Great Is My Valley, The Black Swan, Buffalo Bill, Sinbad the Sailor. After this, she went on to do. I mean, she's been in a bajillion thousand things. And then she was in like fifteen movies with John Wayne, including McClintock. Yeah. That was her last, like, super giant one. She was also in The Parent Trap with Haley Mills. Maureen O'Hara was ultimately forced into this role against her will. She just returned to Ireland before being called back to America for this film. Again, studio, contracts, this is the life. You you sign a contract, you're doing the film whether you want to or not. But as soon as she read the script, she changed her mind. She's like, oh, no, I want to do This is going to be great. I love her. She's great. She's not the firebrand Maureen O'Hara that... I know and love. No. This is a very different, she's a very stern, independent woman. She is stern and independent, and I like it. I know, I do too, especially for 1947. This film got up rating. I'll I'll find it here in the trivia what the actual rating was because specifically, it wasn't like a G, everyone could see it because she plays a divorcee. Yeah, no. That was the most objectionable thing people found about it. At the time, that was a big stinking deal. Yeah, I love it. Love it's it. very refreshing. And she she takes a super hard, rational position. Mm-hmm. And then even when she accepts this taking people on faith, mm-hmm. the whole thing is, I don't know whether this guy really is Santa Claus or not. That doesn't matter. Yeah. I believe he believes who he says he is, mm-hmm. and he totally deserves... The chance to he's be that person. He's not giving me any reason to doubt him. Not to mention, he's only doing good in the world. Yeah. So why should we disbelieve that he is... He could be Chris Kringle and not be the actual Santa mm. Claus. Yeah. It doesn't matter. He's he's brought good things to my life. I'm going to believe him. And he's not insane. No. No, I just... I like her. She's such a different character from, from you know, most ladies of the time. I mean, she's teach, she doesn't teach her daughter about fairy tales... Not to believe in things. Things should be practical. Like, just no bullshit. The only issue that I did have with her is when we get into close-ups and stuff like Mm -hmm. that, it would be much easier to read the artifice from her. Mm -hmm. When we're in action moving scenes and when we've got a little distance, Mm -hmm. everything's fine. It's when we got real close-up at times. I was just like, I don't know. I don't buy you right now. So I don't know what that was. But there was something, there was a little disconnect every once in a while. But overall, it was... It was really good. I loved her. Next, we have John Payne as Fred Gailey. He's been in tons of stuff. Wings of the Navy, Tin Pan Alley, The Dolly Sisters, The Razor's Edge. After this, he did El Paso, Tripoli, Crosswinds, Caribbean, Raiders of the Seven Seas, and just a ton of TV before he passed in 89. He actually read 
Valentine Davis's story and bought the rights so he this could be a starring vehicle for himself. Ah. So that's how he got this role. Producing. Producing works. It takes a while to be okay with him. Yeah, because when we first meet him, he is entertaining Susan in his apartment. They're, I mean, they're what? It's all innocent. It's all fine. We're, we're, we're judging it by today's standards. It's a little gaslighty. It, it is. It, we're just we're judging it by 2018. But once he gets involved with Kringle, yes. everything kind of flips. And I think that's part of the transformation of his character. Mm-hmm. He's totally kind of just trying to get with this woman. Yeah. He's like, he even says, I learned if you want to meet ladies, getting good with their kids. Yeah. And I mean, he's not wrong. But then once he gets to know Chris Kringle, things shift. And he's really just like, I just want to do right in the world. I don't want to just be a lawyer to be a lawyer. Yeah. Which they even, they intimate, he quits his job. Yeah, they were not, his law firm is not happy for him doing this. And he's just like, I'll start my own. Fine. Like, yeah, no, and it's great. I love it. That It's very subtle, but if you're paying attention, it's like, oh, his character shifts halfway mm-hmm. through and you're like, oh, I'm all in. You're yeah. awesome. Yeah, and he's playful and he's sweet and he questions Doris. You don't believe in fairy tales? Like, you don't even enjoy them at all? Like, he he does question her and she's just like, look, she's my kid and I, you've got to respect the way I'm raising her. And he does, but it's just like, okay. And I I just, I like it. Which I'm, is why it's so funny when he walks in and there she is yeah, <laughs> being a monkey. Yeah. He's just Don't like, forget to scratch. And he's like, we're having our first lesson in pretend. <laughs> and, like, and this is where her very serious, no-nonsense parenting has created a gap in her child. A little bit. A little bit. Like, we all make mistakes as parents. It's okay. But it's just funny. And he's just like, what? What is happening? <laughs> but I do, I do love his face when he's just like, okay. <laughs> yeah, no, I love him. Next, we have Edmund Gwen as Chris Kringle. Okay, he's got uh, eight thousand credits for you know Money for Nothing, Early to Bed, The Walking Dead, and Thirty Six. So it's you know, not zombie movie. <laughs> Just make the clear. Mad Holiday, The Doctor Takes a Wife, Pride and Prejudice, uh, The Devil and Miss Jones, Lassie Come Home, and then after this, he did Apartment for Peggy with George Seaton. Hills for Home, For Heaven's Sake, The Bigamist, The Student Prince, It's a Dog's Life, so on and so I forth. I don't know any of these. I, I know Pride and Prejudice, and I know Early to Bed, Money for Nothing, so, and Lassie Come Home. I'm familiar with them. I've never seen them, but I'm... You're familiar with Lassie as a, as a cultural thing. icon. Yes. <laughs> Edwin Gwynn gained 30 pounds to play Chris Kringle, and his beard is not actually real. It was not real. That Uh, is disappointing. It is a little disappointing. And he improvised his reaction when Susan pulls it. He did not tell her he was going to do that. Of course. It's precious. I love it. Unbeknownst to most of the parade watchers, Edmund Gwynn played Santa Claus in the actual Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade in 46. He filled the parade duties of most Santas, including addressing the crowd from the marquee at Macy's. He introduced Philip Tong, who plays Mr. Shellhammer. In this movie, and he later unveiled the mechanical Christmas display windows that accompanied Tchaikovsky's Nutcracker Suite. This gesture is what symbolizes the opening of the Christmas shopping season at the store. Of course. So yeah, he played he played Santa. Like, he was Santa. Because, of course, during the 46 parade is when they filmed all the parade stuff. Oh, of course they did. Yes. There's uh, no other way to do that. No. The cast and crew were unanimous in their opinion 
of Edwin Gwynn. They loved him. Alvin Greenman, who plays Alfred, the little jan- the janitor boy, he called Gwen a dear, dear man. Robert Hyatt, who played the judge's son, John- Tommy Jr., the one that testifies against him. He was a really nice guy, always happy, always smiling, and he had a little twinkle in his eyes. And Maureen O'Hara said, by the time we were halfway through the shoot, we all believed him to be Santa Claus, and I'd never seen an actor more naturally suited for his role. <laughs> yeah. Nat- Natalie Wood actually thought he was Santa for a while. Well, why wouldn't you? I, yeah. No. He might as well be Santa Claus. I mean, he's just, he's magical, and he's sweet. He really reminds us of our mall Santa. <laughs> and that he is just so sweet. I think our little Santa actually passed away because we had a different Santa last year. Um, or just retired. He could have retired. That's we fine. could believe he just retired. That's fine. But we had the same mall Santa for five years and he was precious. He was just so sweet. And just, like, and he, like, I remember I was talking with him. We were in between. I said, you know, you've been our Santa every year and you're just lovely. And he goes, yes, of course I remember Lucy. And I... <laughs> I just got so caught up in it. I was like, he really remembers Lucy. I was like, he says that to everybody, Diana. <laughs> like, it's just. You say that he might he actually could. remember. He could actually. But I have to remind myself that he's playing a role. Of course. But I got caught up in myself because I'm a child. <laughs> he is totally believably Chris Kringle. Mm-hmm. Because a lot of times, you know, with like a Tim Allen, it's all forced through physical stuff and jokes the reason that you buy the reason you buy edmund in this film mm-hmm. is because of how natural he is in the role he's very relaxed exactly he yeah he is just relaxed there's no tension with him and at no point in the film is he tense there's one moment where he's tense and that's when he walks in the psychiatrist's office because he's angry he's- when he goes in and shouts down the store psychiatrist and hits him that's a total moment of tension. That's why he gets committed or why they plan to commit him is because he's, he like strikes the table or something. Maybe. And the psychiatrist guy is there. But it's because that man has gravely offended him by going after Alfred. It's all selfless. Oh, sh- no. But I that is that. a moment but of he, tension. That's true. But he's just so relaxed and everything. He's so confident in who he is mm-hmm. in this role. You never... Don't buy him on screen mm-hmm. at any moment. He didn't need to gain the 30 pounds for me to believe he was no. Santa Claus. I know why he did it, but yeah. that's the thing. He could have been any weight and I would have been like, yeah, he's Santa. Mm-hmm. No way. He won an Oscar for it. Best supporting actor. And in his speech, he said, now I believe there's a Santa Claus. <laughs> Which is the most precious thing ever. And I love it. He, it's well earned. Mm-hmm. All right. Next, we have Gene Lockhart as Judge Henry X. Harper. Before this, The Gay Bride, Star of Midnight, Thunder in the Night, Crime and Punishment, The First Baby, Sinners of Paradise, Billy the Kid. Basically, he was doing three movies a year from the second he started his career. Like, this guy was chucking them out. Studio system. and after. Um, after this film, he did her, her Husband's Affair, Madame Bovary, The Inspector General, A Lady from Texas, Face to Face. And then all of those so-and-so presents things on television, he was always in one of those. Mm-hmm. So this man just cranking him out. 
And in this, he is our judge. He's our judge. Who is between a rock and a hard place. Yep. Because he um, I, and he plays it well because you you do sympathize with his his difficult position. And then I like how when he goes into it, he's like, "I'm an officer of the court, and I'm going to fulfill my responsibility." I'm a reasonable man. Reasonable. Why would anybody think ill will towards me? And then as the circus goes on, he just gets he just you could see in his face the like, oh, what man. the fuck have i gotten myself into this is not a good plan <laughs> and then of course you know william frawley's character charlie halloran who is like who what is his this this guy's job i mean he's the he's the party boss this is yeah, this is kind of in between the rooting out of the boss tweed stuff it's like this last vestige of the new york mm-hmm. democratic party system where they used to just vote eight times and rally people through and push it through. So, like, William Frawley's character is the one telling the judge, like, you can't screw this up. You have to get reelected. He's the part. He's the party boss. Yeah. It's really more like, understand this now. You can do whatever you want. I'm not going to stop you. But I'm here to tell you that you have no chance in hell of being back in office if you mess this case up. Yeah, if you go out there and declare there is no Santa Claus, you're only going to get two votes. Yours and the district attorney. To which the perfect response, because he's a Democrat, the district attorney is a Republican. Yeah, so he'll get (laughs) one vote, which is great. It's great. And since we mentioned him, we have to talk about William Frawley. What's up, Fred? There's no way you don't know who this dude is. He is Fred Mertz from Isle of Lucy. So that was way after this film. Oh, yes. Uh, before this, he was also a studio dude. Uh, Rose Bowl, Songs of the Legion, Golden Gloves, Lady on a Train, Zigfield's Follies. And then after this film, Down to Earth, The Babe Ruth Story, Isle of Lucy, and My Three Sons. He was the grandpa on My Three Sons. I knew a couple of those movies. Mm-hmm. I know. I picked the ones that I recognized. Lady on a Train and Zigfield Follies. All right. Mm-hmm. In my life, he's always going to be Fred Mertz. He's going to be Fred Mertz to everyone. I mean, he has passed away since, so I mean, it's fine. Um, but It's yeah. nice not to see him as a bumbling, crotchety dude. Well, he's crotchety, but... He's crotchety. That's his face. But it's nice to see him savvy. Yes. Because he's totally connected in this movie and knows what's going on. And it's fun to see him not be arguing with Vivian Vance. Yeah. All right. Next, we get the lovely child curmudgeon, Natalie Wood as Susan Walker. This is only her like third credit. Before this, she did Happy Land, Tomorrow is Forever. Oh, and she was in The Ghost of Mrs. Muir. After this, I mean, she has a very... I mean, she's got an amazing resume. She was on Price of the Family, the television show, uh, The Silver Chalice, Rebel Without a Cause, A Cry in the Night, The Burning Hills, Splendor in the Grass, West Side Story, Gypsy, Sex and the Single Girl, Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice, and then the From Here to Eternity miniseries. And then she died tragically. She drowned. Natalie Wood was eight years old when she made this film. Yeah, a little child curmudgeon. I love it. Love it. She's she's great. Yeah, yeah. If at first you don't succeed. Try, try again. I believe. It's silly, but I believe. <laughs> like, she's just like, this is stupid. I hate you. But then, but then the joy on her face when she sees the house. Ugh. It's just like, oh, that's what you want for your children on Christmas morning, for them to have that much, like, joy uh-huh. and surprise. I'm sure that that was her on set the whole time. And then they were like, all right, now you got to be bored by this. You, you can't believe. Mm-hmm. Oh, the chewing gum. 
I was like, I knew exactly what was going to happen. And then cut to snip, snip, snip. Yeah, no. And she gives him some and he gets stuck in his beard. It's great. I love, she's so good. Maureen O'Hara, her quote on her time with Natalie Wood, she said that it was something she always treasured. She said, I have been the mother to almost 40 children in movies, but I have always had a very special place in my heart. Her little Natalie. She always called me Mama Maureen, and I called her Natasha, the name her parents had given her. Aww. Which is just like so sweet and precious. I love it. That's very, very cute. I and it's very cute. Okay, so let's get into our trivia. Oh, there's more trivia? No, yeah, there's a ton of trivia. <sighs> right, the untranslated dialogue the little Dutch girl says when she's talking to Santa, she says that she wants nothing and she got her gift by being adopted by her new mother. That's what she tells Santa. Damn it, that scene. I know. It's just precious. It's all in the eyes of the girl. The girl and then the girl's adopted mother because she's just like, oh my God. Oh my God, Santa does really understand her. Ah, it's precious. Now, it's so sweet. the only thing I would have liked is a girl who actually, you know, was Dutch because that accent is atrocious. Just, just let it go. I know, I know. It Uh, still made me tear up. I know. Like... (laughs) Both the actual Macy's and Gimbel's department stores were approached by the producers for permission to have them depicted in the film. Both stores wanted to see the finished film before they would give their approval, which... Is a gamble. It's a gamble. I I feel like they should have just been okay with the script. But if either store had refused, the film would have had to been extensively edited and reshot to eliminate the references. But fortunately, both businesses were pleased and gave the film their permission. It was shot during a bitterly cold New York winter. (laughs) On several occasions, the cameras literally froze. Yeah, no, that happened. There was actually an article in the paper in May of 1947 that said that when the picture opens at the Roxy movie house in New York. Macy's will close for half a day so its 12,000 pl- employees can see the first showing, which is so cool. I love that they closed so that their employees could see it. And then promote the crap out of it so people would go to Macy's. Like I said before, they did film the 1946 Thanksgiving Day Parade and all of those scenes were there on the street it was just a scramble. They had one shot. They had to do it. They would just go from one and they go to the next one. And it was cold. And Edmund and Maureen were very envious of Natalie Wood and John Payne because they all they had to do was be in a window. Uh-huh. Inside. <laughs> <laughs> Robert Hyatt came up with his, because my daddy told me so line. <laughs> Because my daddy, daddy told, told me, me so. Didn't you, daddy? <laughs> Shove it in daddy's face. Oh, my God. What a little asshole. Uh, I yes. loved it. It received the B rating, morally objectionable in part, from the highly influential League of Decency, because Marino O'Hara played a divorcee. Uh-huh. Morally objectionable in part. Huh, I feel like that's my rating in life. Morally objectionable in part. <laughs> You're in good company. The Macy's scene were shot in location in the main New York 34th Street location. But the shooting was complicated by the fact that the crew's power exceeded the store's electricity. Yep. So they had to figure out how to get more power into the store's basement. 
This is before we had figured out... Like, generators and... Yeah. In the 70s, Natalie Wood and Robert Ragnar were approached to do a TV remake of the film using Natalie's daughter as Susan, but Wood turned it down because she did not want her daughter to become a, a child star. Which is fair. Well, Hollywood... Was not kind to kids. Mm -hmm. In 1999, Macy's Herald Square chose the film as the theme of its Christmas window display. And the windows were adorned with miniature recreations of the film's most famous scenes. And they had the mechanical style window displays that they got rid of in the 60s. And Maureen O'Hara was there to unveil the windows to the public and sign autographs. Why didn't they do 1997? 50th anniversary of the film, guys. Missed opportunities. Whatever. They got her out there. The rivalry between the department stores Macy and Gibbles depicted in the film was very real. The stores were two blocks from each other in New York, and so they had the same business. So the rhetorical question, does Macy's tell Gimbel's, was a popular phase um, throughout the 30s through the 60s, which meant that the businesses were not supposed to share trade secrets with one another. Yep. All right. Last but certainly not least, we have to talk about the awards. This film was nominated for four Academy Awards and it won three. So we already talked about Best Actor in a Supporting Role, Edmund Gwynn. So here, here's who he was up against for Actor in a Supporting Role. Robert Ryan for Crossfire. Richard Widmark for Kiss of Death. Thomas Gomez for Ride the Pink Horse, and Charles Bickford for The Farmer's Daughter. The people's names sound somewhat familiar, but yeah, he won. I'm waiting for a movie that I know, but... Okay, it was nominated for Best Picture, but it did not win. Other nominations were Crossfire, Gentleman's Agreement, Great Expectation, and The Bishop's Wife. Gentleman's Agreement won. Great Expectations was the David Lean version. Mm -hmm. That's a movie that's definitely on my list to watch at some point. Mm -hmm. That man is a master director. And then it was nominated for Best Writing Original Story. I'll totally take that one any day. Valentine Davies was up against... A Cage of Nightingales, It Happened on Fifth Avenue, Kiss of Death, and Smash Up, The Story of a Woman. Valentine Davies wins. So they were actually crediting the story writers alongside mm -hmm. the, the, screenplay. Script, the screenplays themselves. Yeah. And so now we have just original screenplay written for film, and then we have adapted screenplay. So it's from a, wor a, a previous published work. It was also nominated for original screenplay up against Boomerang, Crossfire, Gentleman's Agreement, and Great Expectations. I got nothing. Unusually, there were two Christmas films nominated for Best Picture this year. The Bishop's Wife is also a Christmas film. And they join It's a Wonderful Life for being the only three Christmas movies to be nominated for Best Picture, though none of them have won. Hmm. So it's kind of interesting. In this whole history of film nominations for Oscars, only three Christmas-themed movies have been nominated. Almost all Christmas movies are comedies in some form or fashion. Uh, no, that, I, I, I don't disagree, but that's interesting. So, hey, guys, there's a theme that can be filled. Do you want to write a prestige Christmas drama? Kind of. <laughs> Maybe. I can work on that in, my back, in, my, in all my free time. The question is, what do you name it? Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to our next Facebook group message. And this is going to be my next podcast. Hey! <laughs> not. Not. I'm not doing this. It's just not going to happen. So that's everything. So what are you going to rate? Well, this is my movie. 
I always say, I always start to say, what are you going to rate this? I'm like, oh, wait, it's my job to rate this one first. This time. Because for a while now, it's been movies we haven't seen. Yeah, we did. We just finished Rocky, which we had a wonderful time on. So it's kind of nice to switch and like get hyped up for Christmas. Okay, so how many beard tugs am I going to give this? I'm going to go four. This is a four for me. It's so happy and they're so, it's so pure. I love it. It's a four. Four and a half. <gasps> Oh I wanted to give it five. Okay. I did. Because there's nothing to complain about. At least on a very surface level, just enjoyment of the movie. It's a much more relaxed experience for a Christmas movie. It's a very natural feeling. The emotions that get evoked from you don't feel cheap mm-hmm. or forced in any way. Yeah. It's all just comes naturally out of the story that you're watching. Mm -hmm. The only reason I dock at the half a point is because of those little things that we had problems with, like the legal stuff and the way they played it. And some of the times the tone doesn't work right, but that doesn't decrease the enjoyment of the movie. So I I don't see any reason to dock it that much, to start with a five and then only dock it that half a point. It's a four and a half. Okay, well, I'm staying at a four. I think part of the re I, I agree with you, or, like that part, but I think I'm docking it just a little bit more because for me, I'm not going to rewatch this movie. Really? Yeah. Like, I would do this like, every year. Like next Christmas, I'm not going to rewatch this. Oh, man. I would buy it and watch it again. Absolutely. Huh. Wow. It's the Grinch here. Like Mr. Ugh, Christmas stuff. Yeah, I've gotten over my bah humbug. I am I am declaring now I am the Grinch with a heart three sizes bigger. I'm cutting the roast beast. I am looking for a Christmas duck as Scrooge and trying to find Tiny Tim so I can give him the meal that his family deserves. I have reformed in that way. And then this movie just confirmed it for me. It only took me thirteen years. Only thirteen years. I love that. Over the years, whenever I'm like, okay, we got to put up the tree, I do it all. I put it all up. I just make David take it all down. But once it's done and it's up, David's like, it's the Christmas tree. It's Christmas time. No, I would watch this movie again in a heartbeat. Hmm. I wouldn't do it with the kids because they'd kind of be bored right now. They'd be like, what's wrong with the TV? (laughs) But I would watch it as a one-off yearly tradition. Not like constantly on, but... It's one of those, this will make you feel good and get you in the right mood. So what are we watching next? We are going to flip this script a little <laughs> bit because we're going to watch Scrooged with Bill Murray. This is one I've never seen. You Have you even seen part of it? Please think, tell me you've seen I part of so. it. I think so. I think I've seen parts of it just because I know it's been on television. Of course. And I think I've just been like, I don't. I don't know what's happening or I've just come in at the wrong time. And it's like, whatever. That's because it's a cable classic. Get ready to sarcasm it up with one William Murray. That's <laughs> not his name. Nope. Until next time. Bye, everybody. Thanks for listening. Be sure to review and rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcast. For questions, comments, and recommendations, you can email us at macintoshandmod at gmail.com or find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook.